listeners, my name is Craig Zerpolo, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by Kobe, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with the assistance of WVCW Student Radio and the Alt Lab at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu, wvcw.org, and altlab.vcu.edu. This show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for Why Science is provided by Butcher Brown. You can stream or download their latest EP, Virginia Noir, at butcherbrown.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Kristen Kidd Donovan, the Assistant Director for Substance Education and Recovery Support at the Wellness Resource Center at VCU. Kristen works with students to inform them about harm reduction, as well as supporting research involving substance use on campus. Kristen Kidd Donovan, and I'm the Assistant Director for Substance Education and Recovery Support here at VCU at the Wellness Resource Center. The work I do is around preventing alcohol and drug-based harm for all 30,000 students on campus. So mostly I'm doing interventions for students who've gotten into a little bit of trouble around alcohol or drugs, and um, also working with the other folks at the well on education and programming the Stall Seat Journal to get the word out about um, alcohol and drugs on campus. How did your career in public health begin? Did you know immediately that you wanted to focus on substance use? I started my informal public health career as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zimbabwe in a country that has really high prevalence of HIV still. And so I provided HIV education for every single student. I had each student in class at least once a week um, for the library period. And we didn't have any books in the library, so we might as well talk about health. And so that's where I started. What was it about that experience that drove you to continue pursuing a career in public health? And what lessons did you learn there that continue to guide your work today? The village I lived in was in the highlands of uh, eastern Zimbabwe, and it was relatively isolated. One of my main social outlets was, um, sadly enough, going to funerals because so many people in my village were dying, and and many of them, I assume, were dying from HIV. And so seeing this really early on and knowing that the library that I was in charge of had nothing but National Geographics at the time and that I was meeting with every single class once a week in the entire school, I realized I had an opportunity that, yeah, we can read some National Geographics, but maybe it'd be good to throw in some health education as well, because that wasn't a subject that was covered in the Zimbabwean curriculum at the time. So I was pleasantly surprised at the facts that these students knew. And I posed the question of, you know, how is HIV transmitted? They could rattle off any number of ways. I don't even think most of them knew what you know injecting drugs was, but they could repeat that back to me. And so, you know, I was a little bit confused. Like, okay, if, if they know this much, how is you know, is, does education just not work? Um, I was I was curious. And then a few months in, a brave young woman raised her hand um, during our our health education session and asked me the question, "Madam, what is sexual intercourse?" 
And I realized that because of the British learning system where knowing rote information is, is more important than understanding of what you're saying that's more valued, that I had to dig, I had to go back to the basics. We had to go back to the building blocks of public health and really get an understanding of what, uh, what we were talking about when we're talking about sexual intercourse and the transmission of HIV. So that was really a good education, an, an informal education into how public health education works and how you need to understand your population and where they're coming from to do good work in public health. I mean, I can give all the facts that, that you want, but if someone can't operationalize what I'm telling them or if that has, is meaningless in their lives, then I've just wasted both of our times. So really knowing the population you're working with is important. After the Peace Corps, what was your next step? From there, I went to the University of Iowa College of Public Health, and I was an HIV outreach worker in Iowa City. And so I'd gone from one of the highest prevalence uh, HIV areas in the world to probably one of the lowest. It was great work to have during my college health career. I, I highly recommend, if possible, if people are doing graduate studies to have work that's associated with the schoolwork that they're doing. And so that was a wonderful education. From there, I've had various other jobs, but landed here at at VCU, and I'm not sure I really thought of my job initially as harm reduction, but now it's absolutely the heart, heart of what I'm doing is preventing harm on campus around substances. Working in public health has an obvious focus on translating research and promoting scientific literacy more broadly. What are some valuable insights about those goals that you've gained through your experience? Well, I think looking at the research and presenting it in a way that's digestible and easy to understand is important. Ideas like minimum effective dose that are very academic are really useful. And so in conversations with students about, let's take alcohol because it is the most commonly used drug on college campuses, when I ask a student who's been in a little bit of trouble around alcohol, like what you like about alcohol and what, what affects you are you going after? And what effects do you not want? Realizing that there's a point of diminishing returns or a sweet spot, if you will, that maybe there's a place where they can get what they want from alcohol and not get what they don't want. And figuring out you know, how many drinks that takes them, that's kind of eye-opening for some people that, oh, wait, I, I don't have to drink until we run out, that I don't have to keep taking shots, that if I'm at the point where I feel like I want to feel, another shot's not going to make me feel any better. So kind of unpacking that, anytime you're taking any drug, whether it's for an aspirin, like why would you take two aspirin, even though on the bottle it says you can, if one aspirin's going to take care of your headache? I think that was one of the first things that became clear to me that that's an important thing to communicate and it can be communicated in a really objective way. And it can be broadly applied that, you know, sure, maybe we're having this discussion about aspirin, maybe we're having this discussion about alcohol, but it can also be applied to illicit substances as well. Getting into that mindset that more may not be better. We're Americans. We think bigger and, and more. You know, if a little bit's good, then a whole lot must be awesome. And that's not the case with drugs. Is there one specific facet of public health that you wish was more adequately addressed in public discourse? I just heard something on NPR the other night about um, prescription opiates, and they threw out some figure about the number of prescription opiates that were prescribed in the U.S. in the last year. Basically, nine out of 10 adults you know, would have a 30-day supply. And the percentage of opiate, prescription opiates that are used here in the U.S., versus the rest of the world. We're like 5% of the population, and we're using 75% of these drugs. You know, if nothing else, I think people who have surgery are in legitimate pain for whatever reason, just having this information that taking as much as they need to get through their pain 
or overcome their pain in the short term, but knowing that these are very potent drugs that can be addictive and you know, if you're halfway through that 30-day supply that your doctor prescribed, you know, and perhaps your doctor should have prescribed a 10-day supply, but if you're halfway through that and you're no longer in pain, but you're still enjoying those drugs, that's, you know, that's a red flag there that you're wired in a way that that might make you predisposed to getting hooked on, on pain medication. And that's just biology. That's nothing, you know, that's not a character defect. You're not inherently bad because of that. That's just how you're wired. I get itchy and paranoid when I take pain medication. So if I can get away with taking ibuprofen for whatever's bothering me, I'm going to do it because it's not pleasant for me. And is that because I'm you know, morally superior to people who do get hooked on painkillers? Absolutely not. It's just the way my body works. Many public health practitioners don't get to participate in research because they're just spread so thin trying to answer the demands of their own work. But because of your ties with Kobe researchers and other groups on campus, you've had a lot of exposure to it comparatively. Could you tell me about one study that you helped run and how your experience as a practitioner informed your perspective? Daniel, Dick, and I worked on replicating a study um, that Mark Shuckett did out at University of California, San Diego. And it was on providing personalized uh, intervention for students who are low responders to alcohol. So these are people that from the first time they drank, they're at the end of the bell curve. Their buddies are, have three beers and they're feeling a buzz. They have three beers and they're like, what's the big deal? I don't get this. Maybe it takes them six beers to get a buzz. And so we call them low responders. They have a low response to alcohol. That's biological. That's not tolerance, although they can develop a tolerance and often do if they drink regularly because they can, frankly, drink a whole lot. So Mark Shuckett hypothesized that if low responders were given education that unpacked this level of response and showed them that, okay, this is how you respond to alcohol, that given that intervention that was tailored to them, that they would have better outcomes and show a reduction in drinking. Did the findings from this study directly impact your work at the well? While our replication did not mirror Dr. Shuckett's original findings, I have applied that in our work. The online class that people take does talk about low responders. In fact, as a video by Dr. Shuckett in there. I do have a conversation with people before they finish the class. I'm, I'm sitting with them one-on-one, and oftentimes that video will come up. You know, people who I can only assume are high responders to alcohol are fascinated by that because it explains so much to them. Like, oh, my response to alcohol is just different from, from my peers, and that's why I have one and I'm asleep on the couch. And other people who are in the middle of that response to alcohol bell curve, they understand why they have buddies who could drink them under the table from the first time they ever drank. And so it's very validating to people that, oh, there's not a unit form response to alcohol. So even you know, given someone the same weight, same size, same sex, that they can have different responses to alcohol is somehow really appealing and really important to some students. While researchers and clinicians both implicitly seek to support the common good, there's often a divide between them both socially and institutionally. What do you think professionals on either side of that divide could do to help bridge the gap between their respective spheres of study and influence, understanding that there's an obvious common ground between them? And that's one of the things that working with Danielle Dick on this study, she shared with me this idea of you know, when she's writing her you know, prolific research that at the end, you know, when she's getting to discussion points that she's recommending that people in the field should, you know, consider doing this to you know, improve practice. And her realization that, wait, you know, the people who are doing this work probably aren't reading this journal article. And so her drive to bridge that gap, that to make sure that 
the research that's being done can be applied and applied much more quickly than it has in the past. Because yeah, frankly, you know, there's one of me uh, for 30,000 students. So it can be a challenge to get research and still do the rest of the work that's demanded. So having a, a researcher who's who's passionate about that has been really instrumental in improving practice. And you know, I think the dream is that DCU should be able to build the best possible um, interventions for alcohol and other drugs because we're seeing so much data from Spit for Science. And we have the capacity to really dig in and figure out what works and make sure that we're fine-tuning things and meeting students where they're at and adapting to the ever-changing environment. You know, things have just sped up so much. Um, you know, I think when I first started doing this work, the idea of smartphones, I don't even know if, you know, 2007. That was just starting. So it wasn't as prolific as it is now. And now people have computers that are bigger than have been sent out into outer space in their pockets. It's crazy. So it's been interesting work. And, you know, having an ally here at VCU that is so passionate about making sure that research is applied and studied and evaluated, that's really invaluable. Thanks again to Kristen Kid Donovan for chatting with us, and thank you for listening. Join us for a new episode of Why Science every other Thursday at kobe.vcu.edu slash podcast.